A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is a podcastwarm.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Yay! This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. Yes, it's been a long time coming, but it's here at last. Chris Jericho's podcast. This is the talk of Jericho. I am Chris Jericho. Why do I have a podcast? You might be asking yourself. And the reason why is very simple. Uh, about a year ago, I went to do an interview when I was doing Robot Combat League, I believe it was, with Adam Carolla. And now when you do press days, you get a sheet of things that they want you to do. So it'll be, you know, you'll see, I think it was Jimmy Fallon's show and Jimmy Kimmel's show and, you know, Dr. Drew and Good Morning LA and all these, you know, kind of big hits. And then right in the middle, buried in the middle, ensconced in the middle, that's a fun word, ensconced, there was Adam Carolla podcast. And I was thinking like, you know, podcast, okay, what is this? So when I, when I first heard the word podcast, I was thinking some, you know, pimply faced kid uh, you know that that basically had his own internet radio station. You know, like everybody can do it. Not really too much prominence f- for said uh, interview. So I got sent to this building in Burbank area, where Adam Carolla's studio is, and I walked in the front door to do his podcast. Of course, I knew who Adam Carolla was. I mean, obviously, Man Show, and he had done Dancing with the Stars, just as I had done Dancing with the Stars. But I didn't realize exactly what I was going for. And I go to the studio. It's a brand new studio inside. And right as you go inside, there's a big plaque on the wall that says Guinness Book of World Records. The most listened to podcast ever, Adam Carolla, with like 60 million listens or whatever it was. And I was I, that's when I finally like, it hit me just how huge this uh, podcast world is. And, of course, being the wave of the future. So I went on Adam's show. We had a great time. Very, very cool, um, you know, set up. And he had the whole crew in there. And he had, you know, the computer with the, with the you know, you type up whatever you're talking about and get that on, 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 on the screen in front of you. And I just had a blast. So I, as soon as I was done, of course, typical me, like typical Jericho, right? Like whenever I do something that's fun, 
uh, once. I want to do it again, or I want my own version of it where I, I have control. So I started looking into doing a podcast of my own, but never really got much interest. Didn't really figure out how to do it. You know, typical thing, like if you want to do a podcast, how? Especially in this day and age where everybody has one. Then uh, a few uh, weeks later after that, I did The Nerdist, Chris Hardwick's podcast. Same thing. We spent an hour talking about bad sitcom spinoffs like Joey from Friends or Aftermash from MASH or um, you know Golden Palace from Golden Girls. Like just like Three's a Crowd from Three's Company, like all the bad sitcom spinoffs. And, and once again, I was like, you can like do this? Like this is a thing? You can go talk about useless pop culture minutia for an hour and people actually want to listen to this? So once again, decided that, hey, I need to have my own podcast. Still kept kind of looking around and trying to figure out how to do it. And then finally, good friend of mine, Steve Austin, stone cold Steve Austin, called me one day uh, to tell me about his podcast and said, you know, you need to do one of these. He, he, of course, Steve's podcast is huge. If you haven't listened to it, go check out the Steve Austin show on Podcast One, which is where I'm, where I'm talking to you from right now. And he was telling me, listen, you got to do a podcast. It's, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, it's the wave of the future, and you'd be great at it. And I was like, well, I hope I'm great at it. I don't know, but I want to give it a try. So Steve hooked me up with the right people, Norm Pattis and Rich Berner over at Podcast One, which, by the way, Podcast One is like the, the WWE of podcasting companies. It's like the number one network in the podcasting world. So for me to be invited to to do something on podcast one, it's massive. It's like start. It's like having my first match in the WWE. But I've been working for years overseas, so I, I kind of got the experience. Obviously, I've done radio for years and years and years. Just finished up the Rock of Jericho over on Six Sense, which was a lot of fun. But that was more of a, a music show. This is, of course, is a podcast, which is talking about whatever I want in any genre. And I plan to do so. I'm going to talk about wrestling. I'm going to talk about music. I'm going to talk about pop culture. I'm going to talk about movies. I'm going to talk about TV shows. I'm going to talk about current events. Probably not going to talk a lot about politics because I don't really know much about politics. But I do know a lot about zombies, for example. I'm going to do a show on zombies. But also, this is kind of a work in progress, too. So what I'm going to be doing is, this is the very first one. The debut episode of Talk is Jericho. With a huge first guest, the aforementioned Steve Austin will be on this show, which I'm very excited about. You know, and, and after that, after Steve is on, I'm going to have whoever, whoever the hell I want on, whoever it may be, who I think is going to be an interesting conversation. And the thing is, you know that I'm into a lot of different things, so hopefully I'll be able to express and, and teach some of you guys some of these very cool other, um, other subjects and other aspects of things that I enjoy. So that is basically the concept behind Talk is Jericho, and I'm very, very, very excited to get started. Now, the biggest news this week, just as I can jump in, is, is the possibility, the rumor that Andy Kaufman was still alive. And I wanted to mention that because it's very timely, but obviously now it's kind of been disproven that he's not alive. But I was thinking, like, if there's anybody that could ever make that work it was Andy Kaufman. Like, I don't know if you guys know about this guy, but he was very strange. He was a comedian, quote-unquote per se, but deeper inside, his whole mission in life was to fool people. 
in wrestling, we call it working. He was there to work the people. And, of course, he did this thing with Tony Clifton, who was his alter ego, that he would come on stage and, and be completely locked in as Tony Clifton, and everyone would know, oh, that's Andy Kaufman. But then Andy Kaufman would come down and watch the show. And they would say, well, we thought Tony Clifton was Andy Kaufman. Well, no, it wasn't. Well, it was actually Bob Zamuda, who was Andy's manager. And then later on, they'd say, well, Zamuda is Tony Clifton, obviously. And then Zamuda would be sitting there as Tony Clifton was doing his act. Because Andy had gone and changed into Tony Clifton. So his whole method behind his madness was he loved to fool people and, and prank people, basically, which is why he was really into pro wrestling. If you know anything about the whole Jerry Lawler, uh, Andy Kaufman feud back in the 80s, Andy made people believe that he was a misogynistic, chauvinistic pig prejudice against all Southern people because he was from Hollywood. So I was thinking that like, he was so into like playing this character... How amazing would it be if he actually did fake his own death and disappeared for 30 years to come back? Like, it's never been done before, obviously. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, Andy Kaufman, you know, he's, he's still alive and he's living with Elvis and Jim Morrison on an island, an island of misfit toys somewhere. But just the fact and the concept of, of that he would attempt to do this kind of blew my mind. And I was thinking if anybody could pull it off, it would be him. And if he was able to do this, he would instantly be the biggest star in the world. Everywhere. I can just see this in Japan, in Europe, in Canada, in the States, in Lithuania, Zimbabwe, Timbuktu, Timbuk3, my future's so bright I gotta wear shades. But can you just imagine like actually doing that? It'd be like going into the witness protection program for 30 years, but you're like super famous. And then when you got out, you would just be the number one biggest star in the world. I mean, everybody would want to talk to this guy. So now we've, 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 because the idea was that Andy, uh, Andy's brother came out and said that Andy had faked his death and he actually has a 24 year old daughter, which is impossible because he died in 1984. So that would basically prove that he had faked his own death. But then it came out that it was all, uh, you know, another hoax or whatever. But maybe I should fake my own death for 30 years and then come back and I'd be like super popular. Like everyone would want to talk to me, everyone would buy me a drink. Everyone would want to go on a date with me. Well, hopefully the girls at least. So maybe I'll do that at some point in time. Like I said earlier, every time I see something that's cool, I want to do it myself and do it my way. Do my control. Control things my way. So maybe I'll do that. So look forward to a future Chris Jericho faking his own death show here on Talk is Jericho. But... All right, there are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW, and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas, see? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. 
So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. This this is Talk is Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. And here today, my very first guest, the biggest star in pro wrestling history, in my opinion, and a hell of a fun guy. Steve Austin is here. Steve, how you doing, my man? What's happening, Chris? Man, welcome to the podcast world. I'm proud of you. Happy for you. Thank you. Well, going to enjoy it. Well, I appreciate it. And I was saying earlier that you were the you're the guy that kind of spearheaded this whole thing and kind of brought me into this zone. But your your podcast has been doing amazing, and you've only been doing it for about six months. I mean, I mean, how did you get so involved in this podcast, and how how did you take to it so well? Well, you know, I don't. Know. <laughs> Interesting question. I don't know that I've taken to it uh, real well. You know, my uh, my two shows that come out on Tuesday, Thursday, one's family-friendly, one is explicit content. They're just still uh, kind of a, a work in progress. And, you know, the way my brain works, it doesn't really work on a format. You know, once I, you know, do whatever I do is whatever I talk about and turn into my gal Stacy, who puts the, the spots and stuff in, it kind of takes shape. But, man, it's just a rolling uh, cluster muck of uh, creativity <laughs> and, you know, you know, information. I like to, you know, do a little bit of research on the people I'm talking to. Uh, but, you know, the people at Podcast One, uh, the same people you talked to uh, there in Los Angeles got in touch with me and, you know, asked me what I'd like to start doing a podcast. And uh, I'd been wanting to do one for about a year, just hadn't taken the steps to do it. And then when they uh, asked me, I said, Yo, yeah, you're damn right. I would love to because it gives me a creative outlet to, you know, uh, be, uh, you know, entertain. And, you know, when you come off of Monday Night Raw and you lose that, you know, platform to get out there and just use your creative juices, this was that outlet. So I'm really enjoying it. I've got a long ways to go. It's always a work in progress. And by the same token that it's fun, it's also a lot of work, but something that I really enjoy. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's another thing, uh, like I said, and I've listened to a lot of your podcasts. I know you're being kind of modest, but you have a real good style of doing things because you're yourself and you've always been that way. I've always said it's actually, it's funny. I've met a couple people in the quote unquote show business world that are pretty much what you see is what you get. Zach Wilde is one of them. Steve Austin is another. You are who you are. You know your personality. You know your character. And I think it's almost a no-brainer that you went into into the podcast, you know, forum because it's definitely up your alley as far as just being a conversational, you know, curious person. But it's also another thing in a long a long line of, of projects that you've done outside of wrestling. You've created quite a huge brand for yourself outside of, of, of the pro wrestling world. You've done a lot of acting. You've done a lot of films, a lot of movies. Was that your number one goal when you left the WWE was to get into acting as far as you could go with it? Oh, man, uh, not really at all, Chris. You know, my number one goal or dream in life was to be a professional wrestler. Right. And just due to the circumstances that were with my neck and all that other stuff, it was time for me to ride off into the sunset. And so, man, really for a period of a couple of years, I was lost. And I kind of floundered around, like a lot of guys do to get out of the business. 
right. just due to the fact that I had done about 11 episodes of Nash Bridges back in the 90s and in San Francisco when, you know, I was pretty much white hot, but I'd fly into San Fran and shoot an episode, and they'd shoot me out in about three or four days. And I enjoyed the process, but still, I didn't have any, you know, desires to be an actor. But due to the fact that I'd been in the pro wrestling business, I'd sampled a little acting, uh, you know, had the television exposure and some na- uh, some name value. I said, hey, man, you know, I didn't want to go back to driving that forklift that I was driving before mm-hmm. I got into the wrestling business. So I said, let me go ahead and try to, you know, stay in the entertainment business. I'll move out to Los Angeles and kind of pursue some acting. And then, you know, I came out to L.A. and kind of, you know, piddled around there for about a year, year and a half, just kind of playing, uh, just like I'd been doing in San Antonio. And then really started getting serious about some things and applying myself, picked up a couple of independent movies. We filmed The Condemned, uh, you know, had some small parts and some Adam Sandler projects and, you know, made some, uh, you know, uh, had some luck with uh, Tough Enough, you know, one season with uh, WWE's reality show and kind of went on from there. It's not like I really had my sights set on being an actor, and I still don't. I, I like to do some acting here there. But I enjoy the reality space of the stuff that I'm doing. I'm working on a couple of other shows as we speak, and, you know, my podcast keeps me busy. Uh, I I live out in Los Angeles. I love the weather out there. Uh, And I enjoy some acting. But, you know, it's it's not my total focus right now. Mm -hmm. My total focus right now is, uh, like right now I'm at the ranch hunting. I'm working my ass off, doing a lot of stuff out here, getting the ranch in shape, my podcast, my reality stuff. And actually, you know, Spending some time with my family, which is uh, one thing, you know, when I was on the the road hot and heavy back in the day, didn't get uh, enough chance to do that. So with the way things are right now, I just like to kind of split my time between my independent projects and my family life and pursuing my passion of hunting and antique shopping. <laughs> I could just imagine you walking into the antique shop with all the old ladies looking for a 1942 Ottoman. <laughs> you know what's interesting, though, Steve? You've done a lot of kind of what I've done, and I always say that that when you work for the WWE, it's almost like show business boot camp. You learn a little bit about all aspects of show business, and therefore, if you have the aptitude for it, you can kind of go off into a lot of different places, like you mentioned with the reality shows and with all the movies you've done with Nash Bridges. I remember that you said at one point that Nash Bridges, the, the character that you played, I believe it was Jake Cage, is that correct? It was Jake Cage? I think so. That there was, they actually offered you your own spinoff of the show, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, they did, and but at the time, you know, right. I was making way too much money, and <laughs> wrestling was still in my blood and you know it was you know it really was until i retired and just now it's still in my blood but i got it out of my system right but yeah the money wasn't even close and you know uh, it was still time for me to go up and down the road put people in seats and entertain people in a uh, 20 by 20 squared circle with another guy mm-hmm. and that was you know what i was digging at the time and had so much fun doing but yeah the, the, the offer was on the table to spin off and that character and go down the road with that you know, it's interesting, too, because you mentioned, you know, I even said it to asking you if acting was your focus. But in wrestling, you are acting. It's You know, we play characters in the ring. Um, even I remember when I did a lot of work with the Groundlings out in Los Angeles, you know, the, the improv comedy troupe. Like Will Ferrell was a Groundling and Kristen Wiig. But they said, have you done a lot of improv before? And it's like I've never studied it. But I remember, like, you and I used to stand in the ring and do improv for 15, 20 minutes a night after the show. You and Rocky used to do it. It's like that kind of used to be the thing 
after the show back in the early 2000s was you do the match, have the finish, and then give the fans this extra bonus kind of improv stand-up comedy bit. Well, you know, going back to what you were saying a while ago, Chris, uh, you know, just because uh, I get asked all the time, hey, man, does being in front of a WWE camera or wrestling because you're kind of acting help you in the movie business or your other stuff? And uh, yes and no. But, but yes, like you're saying, because, hey, man, we're entertainers. And all of a sudden, you know, it's time to put up or shut up. You know, the wheel's got to spin and you've got to create. So right. it does train you as far as that goes. But, you know, I've never done any kind of a- improv study. I was very tempted to join the Groundlings or research how to get into it, you know, about two or three years ago. Mm. But it's kind of like one of those things where I'd love to go to mechanic school as well learn <laughs> how to work on motors, but I just don't have, you know, the, the time or wherewithal to, to go through that process. Uh, did you go to Groundlings? Well, what happened was there was uh, – remember they used to have us go do Mad TV, that show? I'm yes. sure you did it. Yeah. And so the the people that ran that show were very much uh, like improv groundling people. So one of the guys who wrote for that show named Michael Hitchcock took me to a groundling show just to check it out. And then the director was this girl called Mindy Sterling who was – she was uh, in the Austin Powers movies playing, I think, Far Frabadusina or whatever, the little German girl. And she was a huge wrestling fan, so she invited me to sit in on one of their shows, and then I did you know, fairly well, so she kept inviting me back, and that's kind of how I got in with them. I worked for them for about a year and a half. Well, I mean, you and me used to have fun uh, messing around in the ring after our matches or doing whatever we're doing, but we've, we've always had a good chemistry, and probably, man, I don't know, where was the first time we met Chris? The first time you and I ever met was on a plane when I was working for WCW and you were in the WWE, and we it, it just it was so happened. I think we were all in Cincinnati or something, and we all got on the same plane, and I met you then. And I'd known, of, obviously, of you uh, because you had worked a lot in Japan with, with Benoit and Eddie and, and Dean, so they were always talking about how cool, how cool of a guy you were, and, and, of course, Pillman as well. And I remember I met you for five minutes, and you told me... <laughs> <laughs> One of these jokes, you said, uh, "There's a there's a gay guy in this plane." I said, "Really? Where?" You said, "Kiss me and I'll tell you." <laughs> Kiss me and I'll tell you. <laughs> and I was hey, like, you "Ah." Know what? You know what? I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, Chris, because I remember both uh, companies crossing paths. That was on or about the week that Pillman and I shot the gun angle. Am I right? Or yes, it was before you were really. He, like Stone Cold Steve yeah, Austin. Yeah, I wasn't white hot. Right. Was during the gun angle at Pillman's house. Cause that, I remember we were crossing through there. A lot of guys crossed through the airports at the time. A lot of the WCW announcers, kayfabe me. You know, a lot of guys didn't want to cross any lines. Right. And there wasn't any love lost with a couple of men, those guys. But all the boys were happy to see the boys because, you know, we're the boys. Man, we go up down the road and we're brothers. That's right. And by and large, for the most part, there could be some heat or animosity between a guy here or there. But, you know, there's that brotherhood man where you're in that circle and i remember you were having a, a real good run uh, uh had the long hair going and we're having some <laughs> kick-ass matches uh showed you, know, you always showed you know, a lot of heart a lot of fire and you know great work so i appreciated what you were doing in the ring so yeah i'd, I'd been watching your act on tv <laughs> so it was fun to actually you know sit down and shoot the shit with you and it was fun to actually shoot the breeze with you and find out that you were a cool dude. And obviously, many years later, uh, a lot of times uh, we would be, you know, in dressing rooms, walking the halls, in the buildings before the matches start, killing time. What guys do 
to kill time before pro wrestling matches is just shoot the breeze. And you and I have, uh, obviously, with your rock band, Fozzie, are in rock and roll. But I have a love of music, and you, one of your claims to fame and one of the things I always love about you is your uh, just <laughs> off-the-wall random knowledge of rock and roll <laughs> history. <laughs> so we would always end up talking about music, and a lot of times uh, Bubba Ray Dudley would join in on these conversations That's right. with us. You know, and it's funny because um, I remember you had a, a couple records at the time. It was like Stone Cold Metal, and I think there was a Stone Cold Country as well, where you were yep. actually so hot that just by picking a bunch of rock songs and they put them out like on a compilation album and put your name on it. That was about as close as I was going to get to being a rock and roll star, Chris. <laughs> and that was actually, you know, that was actually my number one dream in life. You know, back when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be a rock and roll star. And my favorite band at the time growing up was Kiss. And, you know, I didn't have a musical bone in my body. I still don't. But so anyway, that's why it was always fun talking about music with you, uh, because, you know, it's obviously a huge part of your life. But yeah. mine, too, just from a standpoint of driving down the road with entertainment. And, you know, uh, it, it really helped fuel some of my creative juices when I would be in a car driving down the road after a show and listening to music. And I'd see a billboard on a sign or hear a lyric uh, in a song and think of another t-shirt idea and right so, you know so many so much of our lives the highs and lows and we all have that soundtrack you know through music that goes with our story well i mean he uh, <laughs> told me a great story of that you, that you were actually uh you had your headphones on and you were singing in your room and you thought you were singing shock me i think it was yeah and, and, really. and what happened when your brother walked by Oh man, my, me and my three, me and my other two brothers shared a room, and I was singing "Shock Me," and I, you know, Ace only sang like one or two songs for Kiss. And That's Shock right. Me was a good one, and man, I was singing "Shock Me." You know? <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, my younger brother Kevin, who's ten months younger than me, knocked the uh, headphones right off my head. I mean, he, he bit slapped me, and I, I jumped up because me and Kevin fought every single day. That's just what brothers do. Right. And I said, "Man, what the hell are you doing?" And he goes, man, he goes, you suck. He goes, you have those headphones on, and you think you can sing good, but take them off and listen to yourself. Because, you know, when you have headphones on, it's right. uh, you know, like me, uh, you know, you think you can actually sing. I sounded like Ace Freely. And, of course, I did exactly what he said. I sang without the headphones, and I was crushed. The monotone, raspy, brutal voice, you know, was never going to front a rock and roll band in front of you know 40,000 screaming fans <laughs> well the best thing is ace fairly isn't exactly the best singer either so if you can't sing like ace you're really in trouble well i know but the <laughs> thing about it kiss is kiss right it's one of the coolest bands in the world and you know from uh, uh, our world of professional wrestling swag and merch is such a big part of it and kiss you know with their look and you know they were really the the band that really started the heavy push sure. of the merch and swag, and those guys are really the kings of that, and probably still are to this day. I know a lot of other bands that have mute, uh, moved a lot of merch, but you know, Kiss was the frontrunners in that, and they they were never a group of great musicians. If you wanted to, you know, talk about you know, compare them to the the musicality of maybe a Dream Theater, who I know you're close with, but mm -hmm. hey, Kiss was Kiss, and nobody ever sounded like them, and maybe that's a good thing. But the the imagery, the the show. 
that they put on was a lot like pro wrestling, you know, because you can be the greatest pro wrestler in the world, but it doesn't necessarily make you a great showman. So I appreciated a lot of what they brought to the stage. And, of course, also I I did love the simplicity and, and, you know, their music. Well, the thing is, too, is you mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I actually learned this from you when I got into the WWE, is is the amount of uh, of input you had on your merch. You always were coming up with ideas and always coming up with designs, because a lot of times, you know, in the you know the the merch side of things in the WWE, they'll come up with cookie cutter, you know, kind of BS ideas because they just don't know. You obviously know your character better than anybody else, and you always had a lot of input into the merch. Did you get that from kind of the Kiss idea of doing things? No, I didn't really come from from the the Kiss thing. It was just that I knew what I thought was a badass shirt, and I remember when I first came into the company as a ringmaster. You know, they just brought in uh, Vader, Mark Merrow. Uh, I think maybe they just started Gold Dust. Uh, Mark Henry had came in. They were really putting a big red, white, and blue USA push uh, with him on the merch end because of the Olympic ties. And they were making merch for all these guys, and they didn't have one single thing planned up for the ringmaster. And, you know, for a good reason. The gimmick sucked. <laughs> and so, you know, remember Jimmy Miranda used to be in yes. merchandise, and little Jimmy, one of the sweetest guys I've ever met, and worked Absolutely. his ass off to sell that merch. And I'd always go up to him and I'd say, Jimmy, does the office have any ideas for a T-shirt for me yet? And he'd go, no, Stephen, they don't. <laughs> and then finally, we made the switch in the Stone Cold, and all of a sudden I started catching the traction, and here comes Jimmy. And he said, Stephen, the office finally wants to do a T-shirt for you. Do you have any ideas? And I said, you damn right I do. And I told him to put, you know, Austin 316 on the front. I said, put a skull in the back and carve in Stone Cold with a chisel. And he goes, okay, Stephen. So anyway, the, the creative <laughs> idea then goes to Vince. And Vince calls me up and he goes, well, you know, I don't know, Steve. Uh, that skull, that's kind, of, uh, that's kind of Undertaker's gimmick, don't you think? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't think it is. I said, the Undertaker's the Undertaker. And, uh, you know, this is all back uh, in the days, Chris, when you didn't want to infringe on anybody's gimmick, right? Right. So uh, he says, if you can clear it by The Undertaker, uh, it's good with me. So I called up Taker. I might have seen him. I said, hey, Take, check it out. I said, man, I want to do a T-shirt and I have a skull on the back of it, but Vince kind of says that might be gimmick infringement. I'm just driving it by you to see if it's cool. And you know how cool Taker is. Mm-hmm. He says, go for it, bro. And so, anyway, that T-shirt got cleared, and then, you know, that was the start of, you know, the Stone Cold merch train, and I took a lot of pride in, you know, running down the road, and I've always been hooked on skulls from way back when. Uh, my first tattoo was a skull on the inside of my left uh, uh, shin, so skulls would be a big part of Stone Cold merchandise, all because Undertaker was nice enough to clear the idea for me, and there we go. Isn't it funny? Uh, two quick things. One is interesting. I think you mentioned Jimmy Miranda, and of course, nobody listening to this podcast will know who that is. But what you mentioned is that Jimmy was kind of like he was the king of the merchandise uh, guys. And there's there's a whole kind of crew of merchandise guys in the back that 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 you guys don't see, but they run the show, and they're all still all their heroes was Jimmy Miranda. He was like like the top guy in the merchandise world. And it's just interesting to this day that those guys are all still disciples and uh, protégés of Jimmy Miranda. And it was just it, nice to hear that name again. I hadn't thought about Jimmy in a while. Oh, he was such a sweet guy. And, you know, uh, sadly, he's no longer with us. Yeah, he passed away. But, 
he uh, he uh, he was just so passionate about you know the the all the arenas are laid out differently the way people come in and then the way they go to their seats so set, setting up your merch stand so that you get that drive by traffic and you know you've got all your your, your displays out there and right. oh man and you know Jimmy wanted the best per, per cap he could get I mean he was a performer man right and he wanted to do everything he could to you know, help us sell, and that put money in our pocket, also the company's pocket, but he took pride in his job, and that, I really, really, really loved Jimmy Miranda. He was a sweetheart of a guy. Yeah, he, he sure was. He sure was. And then, of course, another sweetheart, talking about The Undertaker, obviously the, 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 the best gimmick Vince McMahon ever created, one of the most intimidating guys uh, in the ring. His, his entrance still sends chills to my spine. But I don't think I've ever met a cooler guy in the wrestling business. I always call him the Fonz in that he is cool. He's the boss. He's the locker room leader. Nobody crosses him. But, man, he... It always surprised me because he didn't ha- he didn't have to be that way, and he's always been like that from from the first day I met him back in 1999. Well, it's funny that you know you did go on record as saying a sweetheart of a guy and start talking about the Undertaker. So by proxy, you <laughs> call the Undertaker a sweetheart. <laughs> but I'll take that and roll with it. Check this. One time when I first got into business, you know, uh, I was in Dallas, Texas. Taker had probably been in business about a year and a half, maybe two years more than me. But he was still, he was green. But, you know, obviously he was, you know, I was way more green than him. And so, you know, we we had about a 10-second conversation maybe before the match started. And I was going to wrestle Taker there in Dallas at the Sportatorium, the world-famous Sportatorium. (laughs) where I broke in and where the Von Erics and the Freebirds would feud and, and Bruiser Brody would come through there and just stomp a mud hole in everybody. But so anyway, it's going to be me and I think Mark was working as, what is it, Punisher, I think. And I think he had a mask on. <laughs> and, uh, man, Taker was in there, and he, he was going to try to make me look good because, you know, I was jacked up, 6'2", 250, just got through playing college football, and he was going to try to, you know, play to my strengths because, you know, I was a pretty big cat. Obviously, he was bigger but work with me and make me look good. Mm-hmm. Well, after I, you know, couldn't catch the first few spots that he called that I would shine, it, that's when you got to cut a guy off and start stomping a mud hole in him, and that's what happened. <laughs> but uh, he was always uh, he was always a real cool guy, and, you know, he's one of those guys that uh, he's very observant. If you, if you think the Undertaker is looking a different direction, he's not seeing what mm. you're doing, you're wrong. He sees and hears everything. Uh, and, and, you know, it was funny because back in the day, anytime there was a wrestler's court or something like that, right. you, know, <laughs> you know, a lot of times Taker was the judge because, like he said, he was just the barometer. And I don't know what it was about him. I guess the guy's just kind of a natural-born leader, but a leader by actions and not just, hey, rah, 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 guys, we're going to do this because I say so. He just leads by example when yes. the guard shows up, doesn't uh, put on a big – you know, boo-boo face if he's got to, you know, do a job or, or, you know, if he's going over and never got the big head. He was a guy that always was on a very even keel, a student of the business, and really a student of the psychology of of life behind the scenes of pro wrestling and probably a student of life. He's just a real cool cat. Yeah, and like you said, and, and for a guy of his stature, both physically and star power, he, he doesn't have to be that way, but he, he's always been that type of guy that you could... I remember one time we were in Tokyo, and we went out to a bar, and I tried to let him allow me to kiss him on the lips for about three hours, and he finally acquiesced and let me kiss him on the cheek. So he is a sweetheart in all senses of the word. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> hey, you know, the 
think it was every now and then I'd I'd get booked on a card with him, and I don't know maybe I'd come back from an injury or uh, maybe I had uh, had my two days off and man I came back to work and maybe I had a hangover, and it's like you know when you work with Taker and you're trying to get some heat on him, Taker's so big he always sells on the back pedal. Mm-hmm. And then he'll fire up, right. stay alive, but he's always moving because he's got to, because he's a big guy. He just can't die. Uh, and so selling for him is different than, you know, like a Ric Flair type. Right. So, man, staying on The Undertaker will wear your ass out. So you, you better be in shape when you face him because, by the, you know, by the time you shine him up, then by the time you got to kick his ass to get heat on him, yeah. and then you got to fly around for him on the comeback. Mister, you better strap an oxygen tank to your back. You can go. <laughs> You're, yeah, that's exactly right because he's so big. He will sell for you, but you got to earn it, like you said. Absolutely. You gotta earn it. Absolutely. It's be believable. This is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Chris Jericho. Welcome back to Talk is Jericho. Having a great conversation with Steve Austin, one of my favorite people in the wrestling business, even though I hate him. Uh, we, we were talking about a lot of different things in the first segment, Steve. You mentioned your whole life when you were a kid you wanted to be a, a pro wrestler. Let's talk about the early days uh, of Steve Austin. Who were you watching when you were a kid, and who were you, like, your main influences to, to try and start getting into the business? You know, I grew up watching Houston wrestling. I saw some Dusty Rhodes come through there. A lot of the guys I don't remember being on Houston wrestling because it's about when I was seven or eight years old. Wahoo McDaniels was one of them. Uh, and, and then, you know, as I was going on, I mean, of course, we watched, uh, and, you know, wrestling, you know, as you know, Chris, it, it was all regional. So, you know, I was, I, AWA was some of the last stuff I got. Yeah. WWF was among the last. I was really getting Houston Wrestling, World Class Championship, Mid-South Power Pro, NWA, and, you know, man, watching uh, the Four Horsemen, uh, the Andersons, uh, Dusty, watching uh, Nikita Koloff, Magnum T.A., Ivan Koloff, you know, the Russians, right. watching all that stuff, man, the Road Warriors came in, uh, I, you know, I was blown away by those guys, but I fell in love with wrestling at a very early age, but, you know, going to the Sportatorium in college on Friday nights when they had the house show, Saturday mornings when they had the television taping, which was basically live to tape, and went out that Saturday Saturday night, I would go to those shows and, man, you know, me and my buddies would be out in the crowd drinking beer, throwing stuff at the wrestlers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my buddy kept elbowing me on the side. He said, man, you got to get into this. You're as big as that guy. Of course, he was talking about Kerry Von Erich, uh. which I wasn't as big as Kerry. Kerry had world-class genetics. But, you know, I was a big enough cat to get in that ring. Mm-hmm. I just needed an end. So, uh, but, you know, so that was, you know, and I'd been watching wrestling my whole life. And so then I would, you know, ultimately go to Chris Adams Wrestling School and learn. But as far as anybody who really influenced my style or my work, the only, early on, Ric Flair did. And, you know, that was when I had the long blonde hair and was kind of working as Stunning Steve. And in some circles, people thought I was going to be the next Ric Flair. Obviously, that never that never happened because no one was going to be the next Ric Flair. Right. But and you know, I was kind of trying to uh, mimic his style as as being like a cowardly heel. Now, I, obviously, as we know, Rick Rick uh, Flair has some of the best lungs in the business, and he just nonstop. But he would backpedal, you know, when confronted by a larger opponent. So. Uh, I tried to model myself after him to a degree, mm-hmm. and then you know when I came up through uh, you know 
WWF and then got injured, kind of changed to the brawling style. That all just happened, you know, just on the fly and organic as it was. I just had to change right. my style, and it worked better for what I was trying to accomplish. So my in-ring style was influenced early by Ric Flair, but then retooled and just was ended up being a what it turned out to be by a process of eliminating some of the stuff that I had to and just forging ahead with the mentality that Stone Cold Steve Austin possessed, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, more kick-ass, whoop-ass. Let me ask you a quick question about the Von Erichs. You mentioned Kerry Von Erich. I always heard that, like, in Dallas at that time, that they were, like, rock stars. Were, were, were they that, that popular? Was it a, a complete mania whenever they came to the ring? You, you cannot, I cannot, uh... Over, I cannot overstate how over those guys were. Really, and you got to make remember, you know, when I was in there, uh, going up back and forth to the Sportatorium, I was playing football at North Texas. I was eighty six, eighty seven. When I broke in eighty nine, things were on a decline a little bit, but there in the early eighties, there in the, to the late mid eighties, uh, night late late eighties, uh, yeah, the the Von Erichs were total total gods total rock stars as over as anything i've ever seen and just completely on fire and mister as over as anything i've ever seen i can say that wow and, and why do you think that was right time right place i think it, i think it's that way because of anything that ever really hits chris mm -hmm. it's the right thing at the right time for the right reason and, you know, it's just, uh, it's timing. And, yes. And I think that's happened in, you know, in different eras of professional wrestling and when, with different acts, with different guys and tag teams. It's simply their time and everything is clicking and hitting for some reason. And a lot of it's, a lot of it is, is, is just hard work. A lot of it is, is timing and a lot of it's coincidence and a lot of it's just luck. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And also another thing, too, it seems that, you know, if you go back to, let's say, 83, 84, 85, that's when Vince was first starting to, to make things national. And pro wrestling got really hot. It became like the really cool thing, as it did 10, 10 12 years later in 96, 97. So you had the WWE was kind of spearheading it, but you had very strong territories in Dallas with the Von Erics. It was happening up in Calgary with the Hearts, with Stampede. I think it was happening in Florida as well, a couple other places. So... Uh, maybe even in Minneapolis, too. But it was kind of the, the whole thing, the whole business was caught up in this wave of coolness, if that's even a word. It was. I mean, yeah, wrestling was cool. And, you know, wrestling's always going to be cool. It's cool to this day. You know, I was uh, recently uh, talking to Wade Keller. And, you know, when I look back at my favorite time of professional wrestling that I like to watch, and I was a, a big part of the Attitude Era, but... If I was to pick my favorite era, it's going to be between 80 and 90 and all the stuff that I just mentioned in those mm -hmm. different territories, particularly in WA. I was a big, big mark for their stuff, Mid-South and Power Pro, just the reality. Uh, the real, I mean, that was real pro wrestling, you know. That was, right. uh, Chris, wrestling was quote-unquote real. So <laughs> that, and, and obviously I was at a different age and looking at things, you know, through a different mindset and different eyes. Uh, eyes that hadn't been in the business yet, but still, with everything that I've seen, and as so many greats as you and I have worked with in our careers, when I go back, just being a fan of the, of the business, and don't get me wrong, I can cherry pick guys from each era and say these were the standouts of their era, and I can appreciate their work. Uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels come to mind uh, of the recent era. 
uh, or when I was current. But that stuff down there in NWA and Mid-South Power Pro was the, the best stuff I'd ever seen. One more question about Dallas. What was the Sportatorium really like? Probably one of the greatest wrestling buildings in the world. I think that place seated, and I'm not uh, uh, dead sure about this, maybe five to 7,000, I'm guessing. Wow. Slam-packed. Uh, it was just it was a wooden building. And uh, the, the wood floor around the ring was, it was basically it was harder than cement. Uh, I got thrown out of that damn <laughs> ring enough times, and it was too stupid to grab the ropes because I was trying to take a spectacular bump. Right. Uh, and there was just a rope. You know, there was those little uh, gimmicks, you know, the little rope uh, things that separated the crowd yeah. from the ring. You know, you couldn't cross the rope. The <laughs> rope was as big around as my little finger. That's what kept the crowd from... <laughs> You know, interfering with the wrestlers. And I remember on one uh, highlight clip, uh, the Freebirds had come into town, and some guy was had a cigarette and gotten uh, Bam Bam Terry Gordy's face, and Terry just two-handed shoved him right in the chest and just folded it up like a sandwich, and the guy bounced a couple of chairs back. I'll never forget that. But there was smoke, and there was that, that kind of stench yeah. that you get with stale beer being spilled everywhere. And, you know, they mopped the place up all the time. And But out there in the concession stands, you know, they had the same old grease that I don't think they ever changed. And there was, you know, rumors of, you know, like mice and rats in the bottom of the vats that had gotten through there, you know, late at night and end up in the, the fried food. <laughs> But it was pro wrestling personified from an arena standpoint right. and atmosphere, and it, it was just the coolest place in the world to learn how to wrestle. And one of my favorite buildings I've ever worked in, it was just, uh, really it broke my heart when they tore that building down. Because, you know, I mean, George Jones, Elvis Presley, wow. most famous musicians that have ever played, played in the Sportatorium as well as, you know, the wrestling stuff that went on there way back in the day. Who was your first match against? Do you remember? You know, you're damn right I do. Man, I remember like it was yesterday. I wrestled a guy from Cutoff, Louisiana named Frogman LeBlanc. And Frogman, <laughs> Frogman LeBlanc wore long green tights. He kind of had a balding you know, forehead, and he had you know, long blonde hair in the back. And, man, I tell you what, Chris, I had just gone through the, the Chris Adams Wrestling School. I had learned to bump. I learned a modicum of chain wrestling. I knew an arm drag and a clothesline, and that was about it. And mm -hmm. after five months of training, one day a week with 30 other cats, all of a sudden Chris thinks, it's, I'm ready for my first match, and this is going to be on television, no less. Wow. So I hadn't been smartened up yet. No really? He told me how the business worked. I didn't know what a high spot was. Wow. Uh, and I didn't even know, you know, if it was if it was uh, you know rigged yet. I don't want to say fake, but but predetermined. And so, man, all of a sudden we go into the office. Chris talks to me and Frogman. We kind of lay out a little skeleton of what's going to happen, and then uh, you can probably find that match on YouTube. I know I arm dragged Frogman about eight <laughs> times because I didn't know what else to do. And Tony Falk was the referee, and Tony used to work uh, mm -hmm. in the ring as well. He was a good worker. He was trying to kind of uh, call me a few spots, and, of course, that confused me even more. Cameras are rolling. Ended up, I uh, hit the frogman with a flying clothesline, covered him for the three count, and that was my illustrious uh, first match. Wow. You got, the win over, you got the win over the frogman. 
Hey, there's not a there's not a whole lot of rookies that could say they beat the Frogman their first time out. So you so you went into the office and went over high spots, but still didn't know like how the business worked. Like, how, did they tell you what the finish was, and you didn't know what a finish was? Yeah, you go, Steve. Here's how you're going to win the match because Chris was kind of doing that clothesline where he kind of uh, launched himself, not really in the air. It was like a running flying clothesline. Yeah. And so he's going to kind of model my finish uh, after one of the the moves that he did, along with his super kick, of course. But no, dude, they, we, didn't, we didn't grab a headlock and start talking one tackle drop down hip toss. But, you know, I didn't know uh, where to crap or wind my watch. That's a straight-up shoot. You know, he did not smarten us up. That's the way, you know, his school was. I can't speak for every school, but that's the way it was when I broke in. I'll never forget, Chris, I'd, I'd worked there for two months. I asked Jerry Jarrett. He had just bought the territory from – uh, you know, Fritz von Eric, when I could start working full-time, he said, we'll send you down to Tennessee in two weeks. There I go, driving down to Tennessee. Been there for a couple of weeks. Lawler had to book, and Lawler booked me with three matches with him. Uh, Louisville, I mean, it was Monday, Memphis, Louisville Tuesday, and Evansville Wednesday. I had three shots. I was working back-to-back with Lawler. Lawler's one of those kind of guys. When he's walking and talking, he's calling spots. Hmm. And, you know, before you even tie up, well, okay, I'd, I'd learned what a high spot was, but now here's a guy calling high spots while we're, we're eight feet from each other, six feet from each other. Wow. And I'm thinking, you know, he's going, okay, grab uh, a headlock, uh, one tackle. You know, he's kind yeah. of uh, with, uh, like a ventriloquist, let me <laughs> like that way. And, I, and he calls a spot, and I'm like, huh? Because, <laughs> you know, Chris, I cannot hear. <laughs> he, he does it again. Huh? <laughs> I couldn't hear that. The finally a guy on the front row said, tackle drop down, hip toss. <laughs> that was, but that was, you know, that was how green and stupid I was when I got into business. Wow. I remember Bobby Eaton used to do that, too. He would call a spot as you were working. He'd say a tackle, and then you'd take it, and then you'd have to watch his mouth as he jumped over. He'd drop down. Oh, leapfrog. Oh, no, hip toss. And Bobby kind of had a messed up way of talking to begin with. So it was the same thing. You had to listen as you were working, but trying to figure out what the hell he was talking about as you were taking these bumps. He mumbled. And yes. the thing about I loved working with Bobby Eaton. He's one of the greatest Greatest, ever. absolutely. He told me, we always cut words. The sweetheart is the word of the day. <laughs> yeah. Some of the guys are real sweetheart. <laughs> Bobby would do some of the funniest things, and, you know, he was so understated. He was doing things without trying to be funny that were. And so, like, many times, you know, you know, like when you go to lock up with a collar and elbow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would just simply grab me on my midsection with both hands. <laughs> it's like <laughs> when a guy grabs you on your midsection and you're expecting a collar and elbow tie-up, it, like, totally throws you off. <laughs> and back in the day, I used to always, Chris, you know, I'm a time fanatic, so many times as I was walking to the ring, you know, the match would start, and I still had my piece of junk watch on, you know, as I was in the ring. And I'd be in there, and I would have him realize it yet. The referee would ring the bell, and Bobby go, hey, boy, what time is it? And, of course, I'd look at my left wrist and like, oh, man, are you kidding me? I'd worn my watch to the ring, so, you know, I kind of easily kind of kayfabe, if you can, taking my watch off and dropping it in the corner. And from then on, he'd go, you know, even if I didn't have my watch on, he'd go, hey, boy, what time is it? I'd automatically look at my left wrist. But he's a super funny guy. Bobby was one of those kind of guys that a lot of times when I rode down the road, whether it was with uh, gorgeous Gary Young or uh, Dutch Mantell, you know, talking psychology, asking why these guys did some of the things they did when they did, they would tell you 
when you asked Bobby Eaton, he really wouldn't have a good answer because he didn't know. You know, he wasn't right. a good explainer of psychology. He was just a great psychologist because, you know, he just did it. Yes. He didn't really think about it or didn't have a great answer. He was just a, a complete natural. I remember a couple of years ago they had Bobby Eaton and Ted DiBiase as, I think Bobby was a trainer in the WWE and Ted was working as a, as a producer slash agent. And they weren't really, I'm not going to say they weren't very good, but they, they couldn't explain why they did what they did. They just did it. It was natural to them. And, and that's why it's like Wayne Gretzky, not a great coach, because you, how do you explain what you just do naturally, you know? Yeah, I would, I would have to say, you know, Bobby's in that in the category. He was a guy that just uh, just working with him and listening to him and going through the motions with him, he taught me so much. We didn't have right. to talk. You know, a yeah. few times, I'll never forget, uh, a lot of times I'd know the card when I was in USWA, and, you know, that was a weekly territory. Same times every single night. You had to change a matchup every single night. And... I was working with Nightmare Danny Davis, mm-hmm. and Danny had probably already had a good 15 years in the business. Hell of a worker, hell of a psychologist, hardest chops in the business. Wow. And uh, so I see the, 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 the matchup, stunning Steve Austin versus Nightmare Danny Davis. So many times as I was driving to the show, whether it was with, you know, uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard or Dutch, you know, I'd be kind of thinking in the back of my head a couple of things that I might want to incorporate in my match. And I saw uh, Danny in the dressing room, and I said, hey, man, you know, I'd been in the business a year and, of course, had so much respect and still do for Danny Davis. I said, hey, man, I'll just, I'll just listen to you, follow your lead. He goes, no, uh, no, you call it. Hmm. I said, Danny, I said, man, I said, uh, I didn't think of anything because I was working with you. I just figured, you know, I'd listen to you, man, because, uh, you know, you're the veteran. And he goes, no, I've seen you. If you get lost out there, I'll help you. And Danny let me call a damn match. Shipped <laughs> in a couple times, you know, when I needed a little bit of direction. And that's the kind of cat Danny Davis was, a hell of a damn teacher. So you had you had a, a decent amount of time, obviously, like you said, once you got into USWA and you went to, to Memphis and worked down there. How did you eventually get the call to go end up working for, for WCW? Man, it was where, uh, thank God, Dr. Tom Pritchard and I had started driving together. Uh, you know, we're both living out of the Congress Inn making some bad paychecks in Nashville, Tennessee. Territory was kind of halfway on its ass. It was doing okay. And I had heard some rumblings, and then, uh, you know, I wasn't really connected. I was just going down the road, you know, learning how to work. I uh, wasn't thinking about the next step as far as right. the big company. And and I think I think Dr. Tom kind of says, hey, man, uh, WCW is interested in talking to you. And I think uh, somehow someone got me Dusty's number or, or Dusty's number to me, whatever, and we had a telephone conversation, and I flew down to talk with Dusty. Uh, you know, told him I was working heel. He goes, "Yeah, baby, I, that, that's why he being like, he being a heel," <laughs> and put me on. And uh, you know, that's when I that's when I got the call and got up to WCW. But it was just word on the street they were interested. I had a, a high profile program with gentleman Chris Adams. I won 1990 Rookie of the Year. And I mean, there was a lot of a lot of good cats that came out that year. Mm-hmm. But it was my high-profile angle with Chris Adams, a lot of uh, positive television time, obviously, which helped me win that award. Because uh, when I look back at some of the green stuff that I did, I mean, it just absolutely makes me cringe. <laughs> but nonetheless, that was my next step: World Championship Wrestling. Now, how was it when you got there? Because that was kind of the big leagues, you know what I mean? Coming from, like you said, the smoky kind of uh, beer hall type venues to going to actual arenas, etc. Was that a big jump for you? 
Well, it was uh, it was a big jump, and Sting was on fire, and I'd been to center stage, you know, and he was wearing the lime green stuff, the sparkles, and he lit up center stage, man. He was on fire. The people were digging him. Uh, you know, I came in. All the guys back in the day used to train at the Gold's Gym at the Atlanta airport. Right. Uh, saw flying Brian there. You know, never talked to him uh, before I really got to know Brian, but he, he just had that star quality about him. He was weighing about 220 at the time, looked like, a you know, a million bucks. And, you know, the, the competition level was very high, you know, just kind of uh, more depth in the locker room. You know, good, great yeah. workers. You know, the physiques were better. Uh, it was the next, you know, step up. And so I had started really getting some, you know, confidence in my mechanic abilities. And, you know, uh, although it was, you know, definitely a step into a bigger arena, I was ready for that step, man, and I was hungry. And I was, you know, I, I was gung-ho. I'll put it that way. I wasn't bashful. I was humble. But I was ready to go in there and work my ass off and make a mark. So uh, intimidated, uh, not one bit. Ready mm-hmm. to get in and rock and roll, 100%. See, I, I liked that you said that because it's interesting. I always had the same same mindset too and a lot of times i got heat for it because there's a fine line between confidence and perceived arrogance but you have to have that confidence especially when you go from you know maybe big fish in little pond to little fish in big pond the only way you're going to survive is to have that confidence in yourself man if you don't believe in yourself that damn promoter ain't gonna believe in you yeah and you know the old saying never let them see you sweat hey that's basically what it is and you get out there and, you know, you're going to have a match. I mean, uh, you know, if you blow a high spot or whatever, you know, just get your stuff in, be physical, be aggressive, uh, you know, lay your stuff in and go for it. Uh, right. It's show business. And, I mean, and in show business, I mean, it's a parallel of life. In life, you've got to be able to believe in yourself. Because, again, if you don't, nobody will. That's right. Be inter- interviewing for a job, same thing walking in the door of a pro wrestling promotion. You know, it's put up or shut up. You know, if you don't believe in yourself, act like you do, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, and you have to. Like you said, you know, it's just like when you first start out, you got to pick up the phone and make the calls in anything, whether it's wrestling or music or, you know, being a pharmacist. No one's going to pick up the phone and call you because there's a million guys out there that want a job, especially in wrestling. Now, you go to WCW and you've worked with a lot of big-name guys, but they're all regional guys. Suddenly, you're in the WCW locker room. you got Steamboat. you got Flair. you got Wyndham. you got Dusty Rhodes, guys like Bob. Bobby Eaton, how did you feel when you saw those guys at first and knowing that you're going to be working with them? Well, you know, I just, uh, it's an interesting question, Chris. Uh, it, dude, I was so, again, you know, alpha, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I was you know, honored to meet them and I was in their territory, so to right. speak. Uh, and they had been there longer. But, man, you know, I was there to compete, and all those guys were very, very cool to me. You know, Sting was a little distant the first time I shook his hand and met him. But, again, you know, he was Sting at the time, and obviously he was very nice and very cordial. Uh, But, you know, then then all of a sudden, man, I started working with Barry Windham, and a guy who taught me so much and was so cool, and I potatoed that guy, so many clotheslines in the mouth. He was such a nice guy. Ended up (laughs) traveling with, with Barry Windham. And of course, took my you know won my first world television title from Bobby Eaton. How big of a honor, yes. you know could it be to get your first title from a guy like that? Uh, Flair was cool. It was you know it's kind of like uh, I can best put it up like this, Chris. I remember thinking back in the day, you know, 
my third car was a 73 Camaro, <laughs> a Chevy Camaro with a four-speed 350. I said, man, having that car would be the coolest thing in the world. You know what? When I got it, it was cool, but it was just another day in life. You know, now I had a Camaro. So, you know, now meeting all these guys that I really looked up to, meeting them was cool, but it was just like another day at the office. It's cool, but we got things to do, so you can't get carried away with nothing. You've you got to, you know, work the system, get in, work hard, and try to work your way up that card. You know, it's funny. I remember I, I, when I first, my very first Nitro was in um, Palmetto, Florida. And I walked in there and I was sitting in a dressing room with Flair and Sting and Luger. And then Macho Man was over there and Hogan had just walked past. And I remember I just walked into the bathroom and, and, and closed like the little stall and just allowed myself like a 20 second markout moment. Like, oh my God, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And then it's like, okay, that's it. Now these guys are no longer the guys that used to watch on TV. Now these are your, are your peers and you have to now work with them and impress them as, as a performer and be an equal to them. And after that, I never, I never looked back, but I had to have that little 10 or 15 second, like here I am Hogan's over there. And that helped me kind of get over that. Yeah, man. I mean, we're all fans of the business and, and you know, the guys that came before us, even if they are two or three years, you know, uh, you know, more experienced than us. Those are the guys that got a little seniority on you. Yes. So, yeah, you got you got to look to them as respect, uh, certainly for you know who they are, what they've accomplished. They're a little bit further down the road than you, and uh, so yeah, it's cool to have those moments because, man, when you really talk to guys that really have success in the business, or I think, man, almost everybody. I can't say everybody, but shares the same passion and love for the business. Uh, there, some people maybe got into business just because it looked like something to do or maybe something they could make money at. But by and large, most of the guys that I've really ever associated were such fans of the business that were all marks. Right. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. And you have to be. And it's funny, you mentioned uh, Barry Windham. I asked Flair one time who his favorite opponent was of all time, and he said Barry Windham. Was Barry that good? Man, Barry was at a, you know, uh, Barry there for about a two-year period. I thought was the best pro wrestler in the world. And it might have been maybe right before I started working with him. And, you know, Barry would walk to the ring, and in all just one stride, he would step up on the apron through the second, third rope just by stepping. Wow. You know, Barry Wyndham entrance. Watch how he just glides into the ring. But he was a guy, you know, Barry's, what, 6'6", 270? Yes. And he wasn't a gym rat. He just had that wrestler's physique, second generation, smooth as silk, all great psychology, good punches, you know, time, good-looking kid, blonde hair, tons of fire, very uh, credible, very believable. And, man, he just, uh, he was a guy that was easy to work with. You know, you get in there with Barry Wyndham, and you might go an entire match and say ten words, because for some reason, things just happen with that guy, and you click, and there's that chemistry. And, uh, yes, he was that good. And a great drop kick. Mm-hmm. All the stuff he did mechanically, but it was just the stuff that he did in many ways, like a steamboat, fill in the gaps with right. the workmanship that goes without saying. You know, there, you, you, you know, don't just call every single thing that happens in the ring. A lot is created just because that's what knowing how to work is. Filling those gaps, telling the story of, hey, yeah, this guy has this hold on me, but oh, by the way, here's how I'm going to try to escape, and back and forth, the dynamics of psychology between a great heel and great babyface. 
No, it's like you said, you got to just, especially when you worked with those type of guys, just following their lead was so, so amazing to do that uh, because you would learn just by being in the ring with them. And that's kind of was, was a lost art, uh, I think, especially nowadays, because you get the, the level of experience has gone down, whereas you could go work with the Frogman LeBlanc when you were first starting, or you could work with the Ricky Steamboat when you'd been in the business for five or six years, and you're always, always learning. Uh, I think now that the experience level of the guys has gone down, and that kind of element of, of learning on the fly has kind of gone out the window in a lot of ways. Well, it's too bad, and that's just the way the business has evolved. I mean, uh, you know, back in the day, you, you call them job guys. Enhancement guys would be the politically correct way to put it. I, you know, you, that class of wrestler disappeared, and I say that when I say that, say that, I mean, with due respect, I wish those guys were still there. You know, I worked sure. with so many of those guys that taught me you know, uh, you know, uh, an eight or ten minute match. You know, those are the guys that I was working with on many nights, and those were the guys that were the teachers. Right. They weren't the biggest stars, but they were damn sure mechanically and psychologically sound, and that was part of the, you know, the the grooming process and the training process, and you know, the the evolution of, you know, learning A B C and then getting on through the alphabet. To, you know, your your multiple layers of psychology that you can apply through a match. Uh, but those were the guys that taught the basics, and those guys no longer exist. Yeah, you're right. Along it? with the fact that the territories don't exist either, which was where, you know, you, you got to have some depth on a card. So that's where a lot of these guys' jobs came from. But with the, with the advent of all the territories disappearing, this class of guys disappeared as well. Absolutely. It sure did. It sure did. Steve, this, this time has gone by so fast. Can I have you uh, come back next week? Hey, man, you can have me come back next week. I'm happy to be on your show. And again, man, I'm, I'm happy you're doing a podcast. I think you're going to enjoy it. I think the people who are turned on to it are going to enjoy it. And uh, I just wish you all the, all the luck in the world. Well, thanks to you for being my first guest. It's been amazing. So much more stuff to talk about. Steve Austin, one of the greatest of all time, will be here next week. And thanks to all of you for listening to Talk is Jericho. We'll see you in one week from now.